The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome. My name is Kenan Vaughn. I've got the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harvest Church, and we're so excited you're here with us this morning. Uh, I've got a real treat. I'm going to introduce to you our speaker this morning who happens to be uh, one of my best friends in the whole world, uh, also one of my mentors, and probably the greatest Barnabas in my entire life. So put all that together, and uh, this man serves as all three for me. And um, I met Dave when I was a freshman in college. I went off to Auburn University uh, by the grace of God, obviously, and um, got there, and, and um, uh, I decided I was going to join a fraternity, and I'm not sure if that was God's grace or the flesh, but I, I did this, and, um, and I remember in those, uh, I don't know what my plans were, but I remember in that uh, first fall, spring, my uh, freshman year, and I was trying to figure out who I was going to be, what my identity was going to be, if I was really going to hold to the, the things of the faith that were um, begun in my heart in high school, but were tender, were not deeply rooted, or if I was going to go on this wildly different direction, and God brought Dave into my life. Um, when I joined this fraternity, uh, there was a guy that was this legendary guy who had been the president as a sophomore, but now was the chaplain as a junior. Like he graduated from president to chaplain. And, uh, and we would show up to our chapter meetings, and there would be coolers lining the back of this fraternity house. And the, the young men would sit on their coolers, and they would drink beer. And, um, and this, uh, this bold young man would come in, and I would sit in the back with everyone else and watch. And he would start every chapter meeting with about 10 or 15-minute devotional, where he would stand up there and herald the gospel before 180 uh, college fraternity guys. And I stood there and watched, and so many things I was in awe of. I was in awe of this young man's passion, his conviction, his courage. But more than anything, I would get lost in the gospel message every time he spoke, and I began to be in awe of God's word and God's grace and the good news of the gospel. And so for literally 20 years now, Dave has continually set the gospel before my eyes. I've continually fallen more in love with Christ. I couldn't be thankful, more thankful for a brother and a friend and a mentor and a Barnabas like Dave. So Dave, you'll come up. I'm going to pray for you and let you hold the gospel before our eyes again this morning that we may marvel at, at its beauty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a true brother uh, who is... is uh, who is iron sharpening iron in my life, who is those things we read about in Scripture that just stick so close that um, through the diffi most difficult times in my life, Dave has been there to remind me of your presence and your goodness. Uh, through the joys of my life, he's been there to celebrate with me, uh, constantly pressing me towards faithfulness, towards humility, um, uh, to cultivating those gifts that you've given me. So thank you for his steady, unfailing example before me of a man who loves you and follows you wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And thank you for his burning passion to preach the gospel. As it goes forth this morning, may it ever shape our hearts and minds to love you more deeply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let it be. Thank you, bro. I love you, Ken, and I love you so much. Hey, good morning, Harvest. Hey, it is, um, it is such a joy and a blessing and an honor to be with you this morning. I love this church. Um, I bring with me my beautiful, amazing wife, Ashley, who I've been married to for 18 years. Uh, please meet her afterwards. Uh, we have four sons, by the way. We have four uh, arrows in our quiver. Uh, and they are, they are boys, and they are all boys. They're ages 15, 13, uh, 10, and 9. And they are, again, all boys, like mud and blood and stick and dogs and wrestling and just just wild and passionate Jesus-loving boys. I always, uh, I always have a, a story or two on my cue of the ridiculousness of raising sons. Here's the most recent. 
Um, I said we have... Uh, I said we have two golden retrievers. One of these dogs is this fluffy, gentle, loving, very old dog named Bo. Okay, when I say old, he's 15. And I don't even know how to calculate that in like dog years, but that is very old. Okay, and so, so we love this dog. This story starts horrible. Okay, so, so uh, just the other day, uh, we jump in the car quickly. We drive away and we hear this horrible thump thud, terrible sound, get out of the car, and we realized we actually hit and dragged Bo. It was terrible. And I got out of the car and and, and looked and realized right away, oh no, he is not doing well. Like he laid his head on the ground and he wasn't moving. We brought out like some food and water and he wouldn't even lift his head. And I was like, this cannot be good. The next day, he still hadn't moved, okay? So he still had his head down. We brought food and water. He wasn't moving at all. And I was thinking, this is probably the end. And I started calling my dog friends. And I was like, is this what it looks like when it's the end? And everybody was like, yeah, that's probably the end, all right? Next day, he had moved and kind of waddled over to the woods, nestled down, was laying down. I had this dog expert guy who came over and basically said, yeah, he's going to live for probably just a couple hours. You need to prepare your family. This is the end. And so I huddled up my four sons, and I had a man-up kind of moment. I said, boys, uh, we're going to go and dig a grave. And in the morning... We're burying our dog. And my four sons and I went out in the back in our woods and we, we took these uh, shovels and like axes and they said dig way deep. And so we dug for hours and we were solemn and sad and sweaty and, 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 and dirty and we came inside and, and we went to bed and the next morning I woke up to go and bury my dead dog and brought out food and water for my other dog and something amazing happened, okay? Bo all of a sudden jumps up wags his tail, comes running over to the food and water, and was alive. And I was like, oh no, we just dug his grave. (laughs) And I huddled the Newman family together, and I gave them an Easter message. I said, we have an empty grave and a living dog, all right? So there you go, that's the Newman family. Uh, Crazy things happening all the time. Harvest, I want you to know I love this church. Ken and I want to say this right out of the gates. I love you. You are one of my forever best friends. And uh, I hang out with a lot of pastors. And I just want to say this publicly. You are a rare combination of tender heart and God-sized vision and leader, preacher, just hand of the Lord on your life. And I'm honored to know you. I really believe that you are going to be used by God to be one of the great leaders of this next generation. I mean that. Um, I also want to say this, church. I want to say this, Harvest. Harvest Church has a rare combination of an amazing amount of leaders and gifted people. And when I look at the staff and when I look at the elders and when I look at who God has put together here, I can't help but say Luke once said this about a church in Acts 11. Luke said, the hand of the Lord was on that church. All right? And friends, I believe that you are going to be a part of a great story here. And I just, I just want to plead with you before I even start preaching. I want to plead with you, don't sit on the sidelines here at this church. 
You get in the game. You engage here. You commit here. You give and serve and go after it here. Don't just sit in a church crowd because this is going to be a story that I believe will echo uh, into eternity because God's hand is on this church. Harvest, look at me. You be the church. If, if I didn't lead my own church in Ohio, I would want to go to this church. I love this church. All right? If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Zechariah chapter 3. I know your bulletin said Matthew 13. We're going to call an audible. I want to go Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to go there because I know uh, you probably haven't been in Zechariah in a long time. Okay, Zechariah chapter 3. If you hit red letters, go back. Uh, this, is the, this is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Okay, Zechariah chapter 3. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just kind of set up this book and what's going on, because few of us are familiar with this book, okay? This book was written uh, during a time period where the people of God were in this spot, where they were living in the discouragement of the middle moments. Okay, let me unpack that. Everybody look up at me for a second, all right? Ready? Let me say that again. The people of God were living in the discouragement and the apathy of the middle moments. What do I mean by that? All right, the promises and the stories of God seemed long ago. And the great hopeful promises of God seemed far away. Uh, this was a time period where there was this big, bad, horrible, oppressive nation called Babylon. And Babylon kind of went all over the place and took over the whole world. And they went to the people of God in Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and they took down the temple and they let off the people to be enslaved in Babylon. And for 70 years, the people of God just cried out, God, would you rescue us? Would you, would you bring us back into freedom? And finally, after those 70 years, God did in an amazing way. He rescued the people, all right? And the people went back to Jerusalem and immediately they laid the foundation of the temple, all right? And then uh, the vision kind of lost steam a little bit. And the people kind of focused on building their own homes and, and life kind of rolled on and months became years until, watch this, 20 years had passed. And suddenly the, the stories of God seemed long ago, like, like all of them could say, yeah, I've seen God move in amazing ways. I saw God rescue us. I saw God do, I've got the God stories, but like his rear view mirror like happened a while ago. And the promises of God seemed far away. Like they knew God was sending his Messiah and God was going to restore the nation and God was going to do great things. But in this moment, they were sort of limping through life, sort of grinding through life in the discouraging middle, like his stories are way back there, his promises are way here. We're just stuck in the middle and don't miss this. In that moment, their hearts were drifting from God. It's as if you could say, uh, let me quote a brilliant preacher, okay? It's as if you could say their spiritual lives were drifting on a raft down a river instead of joining this amazing rapids-filled adventure with God, okay? Okay, so listen, God, in that moment throughout Zechariah, spoke to him and basically said, here's the big message of Zechariah. 
return to me. I want you to come back. I don't want your hearts to drift down the river in the middle. I don't want you to be apathetic. I don't want you to be grinding through life. I don't want you to be drifting down a river far from me. I want you in the rapids with me. I want you to return to me. And so this book is, it's kind of a crazy, mysterious book, okay? It's these eight apocalyptic visions that symbolically, mysteriously shout out the great story of God. And in the entire book, is this, it's God saying, if you will understand who I am and what I'm doing, you'll take your little drifting story and you'll merge it into my great big story and you will return to me. Anybody with me? Okay. So this morning, I'm gonna read to us a crazy text, all right? Now, now listen, now listen, this is strange and mysterious. This, they're never gonna make a veggie tale out of this. Like, 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 you're not gonna have this in flannel board kid ministry. But this will be a symbol that will call out an epically big story. And friends, before this morning's over, you're gonna see yourself in this story. You with me? Zechariah chapter three. Can we stand together? I love that we do that here. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by, verse six. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, watch this, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of God for the people of God and the people of God said, praise be to God. Can I pray for us? Lord God, you are so good. Um, And Father, I pray right now that I would decrease and you would increase. I pray that you, like Kenan said before, would allow us to get lost in the gospel again. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that that would say, 
truth be told, I feel like I'm in the middle moments. Like, like God's stories seem long ago, his promises seem far away, and I want to return to God. Lord, I pray that you would help us do that this morning. And I pray for those in this room that don't know you or understand you, that you would light up their heart with the beauty of the gospel. Father, would you let your spirit fall afresh on us? And would you teach us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Zechariah 3, let's get after it. Verse 1, this is a heavenly courtroom scene, all right? And in this strange, apocalyptic, mysterious, kind of hard to understand courtroom scene, we got three major individuals, okay? We have three major players on the scene. Here's the first one. There's a guy by the name of Joshua. Now, now don't picture the dude that marches around Jericho seven times. Don't sing one of those little songs in your head. This is not that Joshua, okay? This is uh, one of the exiles that came back from Jerusalem. And Joshua has a very important role. Did you see that in verse one? He is the high priest. And for those of you who are not that familiar with the Bible, let me just unpack that a little bit. The high priest was the one who was the mediator between God and the people. He sort of represented the people before God and God before the people, okay? And he would go to the temple. In fact, there was one day that was the most sacred day, the most important day, and it was this. It was called uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would dress in this sacred garments, okay? And he would take the blood of a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of a perfect lamb, And he would put that blood in a bowl and he would go behind this great veil into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he would sprinkle lamb's blood on the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of saying, hey God, I'm representing the people before you and these are the sins of the people and the penalty of the sins of the people is death. But would you accept the blood of the perfect lamb for payment as the sins of the people? And when the sacrifice was done, he would actually take this bowl of lamb's blood and the the community was was gathering outside the temple and he would hold it up and he would say a very important phrase. He would say, it is finished. The sacrifice is complete. All right? If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that everything in the Old Testament just points forward and whispers forward and calls out the great story of God that one day there would be one who would come that would be the great high priest and there would be a veil that would be torn and there would be lamb's blood that would be shed and there would be a cry from the cross that says it is finished, amen. It's pointing forward. But for now, you got Joshua, the high priest. Okay, second major character sort of in this courtroom scene is you have Satan. You have the accuser. Literally, his name means adversary or, or, or accuser, and he's going to be doing what he does, all right? He is going to be accusing. And you know this, but let me just say it. There is an enemy of our souls, and his name is Satan. Uh, John 8 says he's a liar and a murderer. John 10 says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy And I know you know this, but let it just be said, all right? The enemy wants to steal your marriage and kill your character and destroy your parenting and and, and kill everything good within you. He's accusing. He's accusing you. He was accusing Joshua. 
And then finally, do you see the third character? Look at verse one. You see the third character? You have the angel of the Lord. Okay, and let, let me get theological for a moment. Um, if you know the Bible, you know that in the Trinity, there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? And all throughout the New Testament, like we see the Father, we see Jesus, we see the Holy Spirit. But a lot of people ask, when it comes to the Old Testament, like, I see the Father, I see the Spirit. We know Jesus wasn't born yet. Where's Jesus? And a lot of scholars believe that everywhere in the Old Testament where this phrase, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord appears, that that is the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? That is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Every scholar I've read in this text says, that's Jesus, okay? So awesome courtroom scene, ready? You got Satan, you got Joshua, and you've got Jesus, all right? Can we go to court? Watch what happens. Verse two and three, watch this. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Okay, so Satan begins, and he begins doing what he does. He's accusing him. He's saying, see this Joshua, see this guy that represents the people, Lord? He is not worthy. He is guilty. He is not worthy to be in your presence. And immediately the Lord says, hey, hey, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand I plucked from the fire? Okay. First of all, kind of strange. Um, why does the Lord go third person on us? Why is he like, the Lord rebuke, I, the Lord, says the Lord rebuke you, okay? This is an awesome statement of the authority of God. The Lord knows that the highest name in heaven and earth, the highest source of authority in heaven and earth is the Lord himself. And he says, me, I'm calling you out and I'm shutting you down, Satan. By the way, some of you think, I did for a long time, that there's sort of two spiritual heavyweights in the universe. It's kind of the Lord and Satan, and, and the way this deal works is like, maybe it's a great big UFC cage match, and you know, we know God's gonna win, but, but I mean, they're duke it. Listen, listen. Every demon in hell and Satan himself shudders in fear at the power of God. And from the moment he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan does not dare to open his mouth for the rest of the book. All right. God silences the accusations of Satan, and he's still doing that. All right. Now watch what happens. Now this is going to be both disgusting and unbelievably beautiful. Okay? Watch this. Watch what happens next. Verse three through five. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So he put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now one of the most important things about the high priests, believe it or not, 
was what he wore in the presence of God. All right? In Exodus 39, it tells us he had to wear these perfectly white, perfectly sacred, perfectly untainted garments. All right? But this text tells us that he was standing in the presence of God. And did you see what the text said? With filthy garments. Now, if we were to unpack that in the original language, can I tell you what that filthy means? It means excrement. It means uh, dung. It means number two. And in fact, this is the absolute strongest and most crass way you can say number two. All right? If I was in my pagan north, I might sort of drop an SH bomb on the crowd. But since, since we're in the respectable south, okay, listen, listen. I still want to say this in a very, like, crass and offensive way, but I want to take it down a notch, okay? Literally what this text is saying, literally what this text is saying is he was standing before God in crap-covered clothes, like dung on his clothes, and you need to understand that before the throne of God, that, that is exponentially offensive. Here is God who is holy and perfect and awesome. And here is Joshua standing before him with dung all over his clothes. And the enemy is like, he is not worthy to be in your presence. Get him out of your presence, God. All right? And it's at this point that our story takes just this amazing twist, okay? Don't miss this. Treasure this with me, ready? Verse four, watch what Jesus does. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I want you to strip it off him, man. I want you to take those dung-covered clothes and strip him clean. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a white garment upon him, a pure garment upon him. And I want you to put a turban on his head. And on the priestly turban, there was a medallion that said, holy to the Lord. You want to know what Jesus did? Please don't miss this. Jesus steps up in the midst of this accusing moment. And he said, strip off his dung-covered clothes and clothe him with clothes of righteousness and call him holy before the Lord. Okay, hold on to that. That's going to be important later. Because we found out in this text that, that, that these dung-covered clothes actually represented the iniquity of the people. It wasn't that their clothes were filthy. It was that their hearts were filthy. But instead of God saying, hey, get out of my presence, God says, actually, I'm going to do something. Part of my big story, I'm about to do something. I want you to strip off his guilt and clothe him with righteousness because there's a great story coming. And don't miss this. He's about to unfold part of the story of God. So look at this. Look at verses, uh, look at verses 8 through 10. Everything in this text should be shouting out, how can this be? Like, how does that happen that you strip him off and clothe him with righteousness? Look at verse 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are assigned. Behold, I 
will bring my servant the branch. Why can I do this? I, like, why can I change his clothes? Because the branch is coming. Now, all throughout the ancient world and even now, a branch is a sign of life, okay? A branch back then, everybody knew that a branch was connected to the vine. And on the end of a branch, there was fruit. And the branch was the means that life would course through the branch and create fruit. God was saying, and all throughout the Bible, we have this amazing symbol where God says, one day I am bringing my branch of righteousness. I have a plan to bring my righteous life to the world and one day I will send my branch and through my branch I will course my righteous life onto the world. How can I strip you of your guilt and clothe you with righteousness? Because one day I'm sending the branch who will bring my righteous life upon the world. And if you remember when I read the text, it also said, and there will be a stone with an inscription. Okay, in the ancient world, there was a stone that you would build a building upon, and it was called the cornerstone. And it was inscribed with an awesome phrase. And so God was saying, hey, one day, the branch slash cornerstone will come. And because of that, in one day, I will deal with the sin of my people and clothe them with righteousness. All right, now, now, What does that mean? Can I tell you just the story? Can I tell you the great big story? Kenan said we can get lost in the gospel. I just want to get lost in the gospel once again because this is epically bigger, okay? Can I just tell you my favorite thing in the world to tell you? Everybody with me? There is a God who loves you with a love that is real and deep and forever and pursuing and unconditional and relentless and undiluted, and he's coming after you. There's a God who loves you with a love that would blow your mind, and he wants to be in a relationship with you that is real and full and connected where you know God and you walk with God, and he's a holy God. But we have a problem, all right? We got a great big problem, and this text calls it out. That God is holy and we are not. In fact, in fact, before the very throne of God, every action we've done, every attitude we've had, before the throne of God, it's like we are covered with dung-covered clothes. The Bible tells us Isaiah, it's like filthy rags. All right, I brought this, this black cloth as just a means to say before the throne of God, it's as if we are wrapped in, in, in clothes that, that represent everything offensive that could never be before the Lord. And the Bible says there's nothing you can do about it. You can't earn it. You can't like be a pretty good person. And then, oh, then you'll be clean before God. There's nothing that you can do except. Here's the great story. God said, I'm going to one day send the branch. And when I send the branch, that will be my means of coursing my life and my righteousness onto this world. I'm sending the branch. And Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life that we could never live. And he died on a cross. And please don't miss this. In fact, I want to put it on the screen. Here's what this text calls us out to. Ready? Ready? There was a day 
when the branch of life was spiked to the tree of death to strip you of guilt and to clothe you with righteousness. Can I say that again? There was a day when the branch of life was spiked to a tree of death to strip you of guilt and clothe you with righteousness. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He died on the cross to set you free. That anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the greatest exchange ever could happen That though we're covered with sin, dung, excrement, number two, our iniquity before the Lord, God says, strip it off, I'm sending my branch, and your sin will be expiated off of you onto the cross, and the righteousness of Jesus will be imputed onto your life. Before the throne of God, we are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's good news. That's good news. Um, The great pain of my life Uh, is that I have a brother that loves Jesus and he is also in prison. He's in maximum security level five prison. Um, And he's living his life for Christ now and he's living his life in forgiveness now and he's living his life to make disciples now and, and he knows of a guy in prison and he is this notorious killer and his name is Slam. Okay, and Slam has tattoos all over his body. Slam is known as this vicious, violent, horrible killer. Everybody's afraid of Slam in prison, okay? And you'll imagine how kind of shocked my brother was one day when he showed up at the church in prison and there Slam came walking in. Everybody kind of backed up a little bit. Um, And my brother had sort of this nudge on his heart like God was telling him to do something. And my brother went up to him and said, uh, Slam, uh, I don't know if you'd be interested or not, but I have a way to get you a Bible if you'd like a Bible. And Slam went white, teared up, and said, what the bleep? I'll bleep some things out here. He said, I've only prayed one prayer in my life. This morning I prayed, God If you are real, would you give me a Bible? This bleeping God stuff is for real. (laughs) A few days later, Slam gave his heart to Jesus Christ. And though his sin was black, though his robes were black and, and full of iniquity, though everything on his life was offensive to God, Slam was wrapped in a robe of righteousness and became a follower of Jesus. That's the gospel. And there's a courtroom scene way in the past where Satan accusing, accusing, accusing. Jesus said, nope, actually, you be silent. I will change your clothes because one day a branch of life will be spiked to a tree of death to strip your guilt and set you free and wrap you in a robe of righteousness. And if you know that, it changes everything. If you know that, it calls your heart into the great story. If you know that, he's trying to say, people, you'll return to me and not be content to float down a river. But you'll live in light of the great gospel. Okay, can I bring us to a few application points and then I'm done. 
Let me put them on the screen. Number one, uh, the enemy wants you to feel guilty when God has called you righteous. All right? One of the great enemies of our Christian life is guilt. And, and many people in this room, you'd feel like this if we were to be very real right now. You'd feel like, truth be told, like if God's looking down on me, like he is disappointed. He sees what I've done. He's seen, he's seen my life. He sees my attitudes. I'm not measuring up as a Christian. And God is kind of shaking his head, looking at me, saying, you don't measure up. Can I tell you something? Uh, the living God of the universe would speak out of this text into your life and say, hey, I want you to live in the reality of who you are before me. I nailed my son to a cross to strip your guilt and to buy your freedom. Don't you let guilt sideline you, okay? And I think what it means to say, put on the breastplate of righteousness is to cling to this truth of Jesus, that because of him, we are righteous in him, amen? Let's live how God sees us. Okay, here's a second point of application, though, before we get too far. The enemy wants you to feel righteous when God wants you to receive his conviction, correction, and discipline, okay? Like, like the enemy often flips the strategy and wants us to feel like, hey, I'm good, I'm always right. There's not, listen, the Christian life and the beauty of the gospel is that it's not just this one point in the past, forgiveness is done, and now you're good, okay? The Christian life is daily coming to the Lord, daily receiving his forgiveness, daily confessing our sins and living the gospel, which is this awesome transaction of him forgiving you and giving you righteousness, okay? My default mode often when somebody accuses me is like, no way, I'm right. But the Lord wants us to live in his conviction and correction and discipline. Enemy wants you to feel guilt and condemnation. The Lord wants you to live in his conviction, correction, and discipline. Okay, let me give us one final point. Here we go. May the beauty of the gospel cause us to turn and return if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, can I just, can I just plead with you something? Uh, we're not trying to do a church show here. Like This isn't just like a, a religious thing to check off a box. There's a Savior who loves you and died for you, and he wants to strip your guilt and set you free, and you can know him. The Bible says, if you will believe that he is the Lord and receive him as your savior and Lord, you will be saved. And my prayer as we go into communion time is that some of you would do that. Some of you would say, this is my morning and I'm turning to Christ, okay? Hey, secondly, um, that some of us would return to the Lord in light of the gospel that we would let our lives be poured out for him. And so would you do something with me? Uh, would, you just, would you close your eyes for a moment? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up and, and play in the background. And I just want you to, I want you to picture this scene. And I'll close this message like this. Just, just picture this scene. There's a heavenly courtroom scene before the throne of God. And truth be told, there, there's, 
there's like this list over your life, like everything you've ever done, every thought, every action, that, that one horrible action that it's like the scar of your life that you can't let go of. The guilt is over your life. And truth be told, Satan is accusing you and he's right. Before the throne of God, you are not worthy. But can I tell you a beautiful truth? Jesus is willing to say, hey, strip off that guilt. Let it not be there anymore. I'm not counting the list. I'm not holding it against you. Not because of what you have done, but because I, the branch, was spiked to a tree of death, wrap her up in my robe of righteousness. Wrap him up in a robe of righteousness. Because before the throne of God, you are pure and clean. My friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You are in the place of Joshua. And that's the gospel. Can I pray for us? Lord, we love you. We, we thank you for this amazing story. And I pray that it would cause our hearts to, to chase after you, Lord. I pray that our lives would be found in you, God, that we would come after you. And I pray for anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know you, that this would be their morning. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to transition into a time of communion now. Um, Jesus said there, there's a path to guilt being stripped and righteousness being wrapped around you. And Jesus said it's through him. And he took bread and he took wine and he broke bread and he poured wine. And he said, this is my body that's broken through you. Through my brokenness, you can be made whole. And he poured wine and he said, this is my blood which is poured out through you. Through my blood, you can be set free. And we take these symbols to remember and to celebrate the Lord. So friends, I'm going to ask you to right now just spend a few moments uh, reflecting on the gospel, lifting your life before the Lord. And we're going to have elders and staff and leaders uh, in the gaps. And if this morning you would like to meet Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you'd like your clothes to be changed, uh, would you pull one of us aside? We'd love to pray for you. Uh, we would love to introduce you to the righteous branch. Um, and for the rest of you, when the moment's right, would you come up, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, and would you remember and celebrate his beautiful sacrifice? The gospel is good, is it not? He is good. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.